Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Well, uh, with all that's happening around the world, it's only right we speak about global uh, politics right now. And I'm delighted uh, to be joined by politics and economics student, uh, Tipperary man, uh, Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. Uh, good to see you today. We have to start with the Italian uh, general election. I alluded to this earlier on when I was speaking to uh, Francis. It's fascinating what's going on there, isn't it? It's fascinating. It's the only story in town, really, from yeah. an international perspective today. And it's remarkable, really, when you, you know, the polls were, were broadly accurate. It looks like Italy is going to have its first far-right leader, its first female uh, prime minister and her name is going to be Georgia Maloney. And I have to say, I, I was reading a couple of profiles on her during the week. She is a fascinating character. Now, just to go over it, I mean, the reason she's going to be catapulted into power is she's expected to form a right-wing coalition with two other parties. She leads a party called the Brothers of Italy, which she formed herself in 2012. And she's expected uh, to form a government with uh, the Northern League, a party led by Matteo Salvini. People might be familiar with him. Sure. And people will definitely be familiar with Silvio Berlusconi, who uh, who is still hanging around at, I think, 86 years of age My now, uh, his Forza Italia party. So they're expected to... Uh, the Brothers of Italy garnered 26% uh, in or around that. That's the estimate in the election. And they're expected to form a right-wing coalition. She will be Italy's first far-right leader since Benito Mussolini. And when you say when you say that, it is kind of extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't it just? And they have sort of short memories. But I suppose, is this all born out of the fact, similar enough to here, Italy, uh, you, you know, I mean, with the the cost of energy, with, uh, you know, price hikes on everything, is that is that what's driving this? That is the thing. And you see, Italy had been under a unity government uh, led by Mario Draghi, which yes. unfortunately collapsed last July. Now, interestingly, Giorgia Maloney and the Brothers of Italy were the only party not to partake in that unity government. So that is, I suppose, part of the reason for their popularity this time round. They were able to brand themselves as anti-establishment opponents of the government and Mm. by all accounts they flourished. You know, the Italians... And will you explain to listeners how far they've come in such a short time? Was it from 4%? Just 4% in 2018, just 4% of the vote, and they're now expected to to become the largest party to take around 26% of the vote this time. So that is a a meteoric rise. Mm. Uh, And she herself has had a meteoric rise as well. She, you know, her background in politics is interesting. She joined kind of a far-right movement when she was a student, was involved in student politics. She subsequently uh, went into government under Silvio Berlusconi and was actually Italy's youngest ever minister uh, back in 2008. And following the collapse of that government, she formed the Brothers of Italy in 2012 and has gone on. Now, admittedly, it's taken a bit of time because, as we say, 4% in 2018. But it's only in the past couple of months that the party has really rose to prominence uh, and mm. flourished. And she denies Thomas being fascist. She denies being fascist, and, yes. and she's made a couple of kind of very ambiguous comments. She she claims to identify with Mussolini's successors. Yes. Whatever that what, kind of what means. does that mean? I I'm not entirely sure right. because I mean, 
her her campaign manifesto, she endorses a lot of conventional kind of far-right policies. You know, she's campaigned against abortion and LGBT rights, sounded warnings about the, the number of immigrants, in particular mm. Muslim immigrants entering Italy. And she's promised to, to renegotiate uh, Italy's massive EU COVID recovery plan. Mm. Now, I, I think the most interesting part of it, though, is she's been quite unequivocal in her support for Ukraine and NATO. You know, she has condemned the Russian invasion, which is interesting because her prospective coalition partners... Berlusconi. Berlusconi, yeah. in particular, haven't yeah. done so. You know, they've well, he's been... He's a friend of Putin's. He's a friend yeah. of Putin. They went yeah. on an infamous ski trip in, in 2012 to Sochi. He actually visited Crimea alongside Putin in 2015. Um... So, you know, he has kind of a bromance going there. Similarly, Matteo Salvini, the leader of the other right-wing party, as I say, has been lukewarm on sanctions mm. uh, because he, he he sees them to, or he thinks they're affecting the Italian economy adversely. But she has been quite unequivocal in her support. She's condemned the invasion. Um, she she has been firm in her support for NATO mm. and for Ukraine throughout the whole thing. And she, I, I heard her on national radio this morning, and she was speaking moderately. But are they going to be a little nervous in Brussels? Do you think because of maybe possibly an anti EU stance to some degree? Oh, they will be. They will be. I, I, and I was reading Tony Connolly's piece of RTE over the weekend, and and there is certainly alarm be- bells ringing in Brussels. More so, I think, to do with some of the fiscal policies that she might. Endorse. I mentioned there that she wants to renegotiate EU uh, the EU COVID recovery plan. I mean that has repercussions in Brussels. Italy has long been known for its fiscal incompetence, mm-hmm. shall we mm-hmm. say? Uh, you know, reckless yeah. spending and and a huge a huge public debt uh, and things like that. So I mean that is that is a consideration in. Um, in Brussels, certainly, and and a lot of the European politicians will be quite wary. You look at this, you know, Eurosceptic parties. We have them in Hungary. We have Marine Le Pen in France. You know, her profile has risen in recent mm-hmm. years, and this, I suppose, is another is another example of that. It's going to be interesting. What is the choreography? That uh, my understanding is the president has to call upon her to be prime minister. Is there any danger that he wouldn't? There is a slight. I mean, he 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 has been seen to kind of intervene in the past. His name is Sergio Mattarella. Yes, because he tried to get uh, Mario. Draghi to stay on, did he? He not? did. He yeah. did. He pushed Draghi to stay on. Draghi himself apparently wants to be president, uh, but that's a story for another day. But certainly, yes, yeah, the prime or the president has a little bit more authority, I think, than we'll say President Higgins would yes. have in yes. this country. But another interesting thing on the electoral system, they actually reformed the Italian electoral system in 2019. They've shrunk the parliament. So you had 400 deputies, uh, you have now 400 deputies elected to the chamber. That's down from 630 uh, and now 200, and 200 senators down from 315. So, you know, a significant reduction in the number of politicians, but they obviously felt it was necessary. Uh, they use a combination of first past the post and proportional representation. Um, so it is quite, there's an interesting dynamic there. It's going to be interesting to see uh, how how that turns out indeed. Now, you made reference there to uh, the war in uh, Ukraine. Um, What what about the current situation there? Because some of it is very worrying, isn't it? It is very worrying. I mean, there is no doubt that last week represented, I suppose, the, the most dramatic escalation since the actual invasion began 
on February 24th. We've had the referendums over the past few days in, in those four eastern and southern Ukraine regions, Donetsk, Luhansk, Kherson and Zaporizhia. Um, and many think, and, and I think they're probably right, that those votes will serve as, as a pretext for Putin trying to completely annex those territories. To claim it as Russian territory. To claim it as Russian yes. territory, as he did with Crimea. And of course, the consequences of that, you know, aside from, you know, it would be an illegal annexation, of course, mm. but Putin can then claim that Russian territory is being attacked uh, by Ukraine, that it's being directly attacked. Right. And I suppose... And that's a different ballgame. That's a different ballgame because, you know, Russian military doctrine, it allows the use of tactical nuclear weapons if the country's territorial integrity is under threat. So you can read between the lines Mm. here and see the tactic that he's trying to implement. And Thomas, the fact that nowhere else in the world would acknowledge that... Does that will, will that change his mind in some way? No? Doesn't seem to really impinge on Putin. I mean, I don't think very few places have acknowledged the cry that you know he sees Crimea, Crimea as yeah. part of you know mo- most will say certainly in Europe that Crimea is still part of Ukraine, um, which you know which to most eyes it is. Mm. So I mean, a very interesting dynamic there. I mean, people. Like, and, and people are starting to get very worried. There, there is no doubt. And that question is being floated around quite regularly. Could he actually use nuclear weapons? Could he use a tactical nuke to strike Ukraine? And, and it is potentially a devastating scenario. But of course, the result of that would be catastrophic when you, when you think about it, I suppose, because NATO would probably definitely... Uh, well, NATO would have to come up with some sort of response. You yes. know, and, and I mean, it, it is hugely worrying. I don't think anybody can say, and I don't think Putin even knows himself. The one thing is... It, it, there is a hint of desperation to these, these latest tactics. Uh, you know, he's under increasing pressure, I think, in the Kremlin. There mm. there have been letters signed by local politicians demanding his resignation. We've seen the street protests in the last Absolutely, week. Yeah. And you know, the mobilisation now as well. Yeah, as... and the mobilisation, like 300,000 reservist troops. And, and the thing about reservist troops, they all have some kind of prior military experience. So he hasn't enforced conscription yet. And I think is reluctant to do so because in the past you had Russian conscripts sent to places like Chechnya and Afghanistan. A lot of them came home in coffins and that fueled a lot of anti-war sentiment. Yes. And I think the Kremlin are intent on avoiding that if at all possible because we, we see the number of, of, I suppose, disenchantment with the Kremlin or the level of disenchantment is growing. Uh, now, whether it will, be, it will be enough to topple Putin... Mm. But people are flooding out of the country, are they not? That is the know? thing. That yeah. is the thing, you know, and, you know, they're they're seeking asylum in other countries. I mean, you have Alexei Navalny from his, his prison cell. He, he's getting the message out to protest. I think myself, it is probably... The fact that there is no would-be successor there to Vladimir Putin... Uh, even from within his own circle, makes this scenario quite dangerous. Just before we wrap up today, you're going to talk to us about uh, Mexico and the violence in Mexico and what's happening there. And I suppose the fact that it's it's really driven by, by the drugs trade. Uh... That's it indeed. You know, and the first thing to say is the president of Mexico, his name is Andres Manuel López Obrador, they call him AMLO for short, he claims that the country is a country of tranquility, uh, of peace. Wow. Now, it would strike me that he, he, he is deluding himself there because the reality 
is very, very different. The reality is that there is a staggering level of violence in the country. And as you say, much of it emanates from from drug lords, drug cartels and gangs. But I, I was looking through I was looking through a couple of analysis papers on it and we, we kind of forget Mexico suffers for, for certain reasons. Its location, if you think about its location, it's located right above the kind of the infamous cocaine factories in the rainforests of we'll say Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, we all know Pablo Escobar and you know, his his cocaine narcos cartels, and narcos that, yeah. and all that. Yeah. So those drugs have to transit up through Mexico into the United States. So that is one thing. That's fueling it from the south. Then you have the United States, which is a country in which firearms, lethal firearms, circulate widely. And a lot of those we- weapons flow down across the border into Mexico. So you've kind of the convergence of these two forces and that creates... That, I suppose, creates an environment in which drugs and and violent criminality can flourish, can thrive. And that seems to be one of the, you know, one of Mexico's main problems. Mm. I mean... And that's not going to stop in the near future. So, I mean, what, if anything, can be done about this in Mexico? Yeah, I mean, past presidents, Felipe Calderon, he was in office in 2006 to 2012... He tried to tackle it. He, he launched a war on drugs. He had some success, not really. The current guy, Lopez Obrador, has, has reformed the police force. And the key really here is the police force. And you could probably apply the same to the United States because there's a lot of violence there as well. Funding the police, giving them adequate resources and ensuring they're properly trained because... A lot of, you know, a lot of police officers would engage in corruption with the drug cartels. They're paid off. And that is because... Because their own pay is so Yeah, bad. because they're underpaid yeah. by the government. You know, so that's a, that's a major thing. Also targeting the major, the major crime lords. And that's obviously easier said than done. But these gangs now, you know, as well as the volume of these gangs, I think they're, the stat is 255 criminal gangs operating in the country... But as well as their volume, their size, it's their sophistication. They're now driving armoured vehicles. They have weapon-carrying drones. They have all these resources at their disposal. So it's all military-grade stuff. It's all military-grade stuff. So you need a police force or a security service that's capable of tackling that. And that is crucial if, you know, if you're going to do that. And really, what does that require? Well, it requires money. It requires time. You're not going to fix the problem overnight. It also requires serious political will because there will be politicians who are also engaged in corruption with drug lords who are also getting paid off, particularly, I suppose, at local and regional level. Mm. But like it is worth saying, places like Mexico City have had a little bit of success in reducing crime and that's down to small things, paying police officers more, introducing street lighting, you know, which seems... Basic. Basic enough, basic enough, but can have an effect, I suppose. You know, it increases visibility in that. What, what is the murder rate there and can you compare it for me? Yeah, so 28 per 100,000 people, that's four times the figure in the US. And I think this, this, this statistic is better, this next one. On average, some 25 people disappear in the country each day. Now, you would assume the most of them are killed, but 25 each Every day. Every day? Yeah. That, that is, you know, it's a population of 129 million, I suppose, admittedly a big country, but that doesn't excuse it. 
So, you know, I mean, it, it is a really... Now, look, I mean, Mexico is a great country in other respects. We don't want to, you know, uh, we don't want to taint it too much, but there is no doubt criminality and violence is a huge problem. Um, we were going to speak about India, but we'll have to leave it till another time. But just uh, what to watch out for this uh, coming week? Yeah, so next Sunday, the Brazilian presidential election, Bolsonaro up against uh, former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Uh, Now, it's a two-round election, and those two will most likely emerge as the two leading candidates. Subsequent to that, the runoff vote will be held on October 30th. So this is pretty much a warm-up next Sunday. But it's still significant, and there are still um, seats in Parliament to be decided as well. Very interesting to see what direction the country takes. Won't it indeed? We'll have to look to number 10 as well, I guess. We'll have to look to number 10 because, I mean, we're we're adjusting, the UK is adjusting into the post-Elizabethan age now. You know, Liz Truss had kind of a baptism of fire with the with the death of the Queen and then she was at the, the, or, um, the, the United Nations last week. But, you know, back at home, things aren't great. The economy is stagnating. Prices are soaring. We've talked about the, the pound already the, the today. Toilet, yeah. So these next couple of weeks could determine, uh, you know, what kind of premier she is going to be. And finally then, winter is coming. The energy crisis. We have our budget tomorrow, but yeah. a lot of different European countries are introducing kind of radical new policies. So for anyone who's interested in kind of government policy in that, it'll be interesting to look across the the global landscape to see what other governments do and can we learn from them. It'll be interesting. And as a young man studying economics, uh, this notion of a big spend tomorrow, 10 billion, what do, what do you make, what would economists think of that? Because, they, like, let's let's leave, you know, the reality of, of human beings out of this. But, I mean, what would an economist think of that? Yeah, well, I mean, 10 billion, it's an awful lot of money and reco- economists tend to tend to be kind of fiscally responsible yes. and that. So, I mean, you would have to be cautious. Now, I would have confidence in Pascal Donoghue and, and Michael McGrath. They seem to know what they're doing. Certainly, they're very articulate and they outline their ideas very well. But we have to have something, obviously, to cushion the bro. The cost of living is soaring, energy prices are soaring, uh, and people need something. They need something to get them through this winter. So you just hope that the policies are sensible, but they're also effective. All right. Thomas Alms, good to see you. Thanks very Thanks, much Fran. indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.